Hey there, NASCAR fans. Have you got your copy of the latest edition of NASCAR Pole Position Print Magazine? If not, there's no better time than now to subscribe at PolePositionMag.com. NASCAR Pole Position is the only print magazine covering NASCAR. Officially licensed by NASCAR, NASCAR Pole Position Magazine is published throughout the NASCAR season, and each edition is an instant collector's item, backed with great feature stories and photography. The magazine is even mailed to you in a poly bag for those who love to collect NASCAR memorabilia. At PolePositionMag.com, you can even find past issues available to purchase. Get your subscription to NASCAR Pole Position and get great NASCAR content delivered straight to your mailbox throughout the season. Learn more at PolePositionMag.com. That's PolePositionMag.com. Eric Estep here. One of my favorite parts of being a NASCAR fan is collecting diecasts. It's how I got my start on YouTube, actually. To me, a room is not complete until it features shelves of NASCAR diecast cars. It's as good a time as ever to continue your collection or begin an all-new one by pre-ordering your favorite driver's 2022 next-gen diecast at LionelRacing.com or at any authorized Lionel retailer. Lionel is the official diecast of NASCAR, and don't miss Lionel Racing's NASCAR Authentics diecasts at a Walmart or Target near you. Not only is Lionel the official diecast of NASCAR, but they're also official supporters of the Out of the Groove Podcast Network. So what are you waiting for? Head to LionelRacing.com to order your favorite driver's 2022 diecast. Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Hello, this is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast, your source for all things NASCAR history. Hello, it's your host, Rick Houston, and welcome back to the Scene Vault Podcast. And also, I would like to welcome back my boss. How about that? Well, I would call you my former boss, but even on this deal, if you say something, I'm going to jump. So <laughs> seriously, Steve, welcome back Thank you thank to you. the podcast. And I know it's probably been a very tough week or so for you. And I want to express my condolences to you personally on the loss of your friend, Tom Higgins. Steve, are you doing okay? Oh, I'm doing fine, Rick. It's, it's hard. You can't, how can it not be hard when you lose your best friend? I don't care who you are. You get an empty feeling inside. But, you know, when you start to think about what you were together and what you did together, uh, it goes away. The memory sort of take over, and that's what's happening to me right about now. And a lot of other people that knew Tom very well. I think, I think that also, I might add, Tom wouldn't want it any other way. He was the kind of guy, you knew him well, that was uh, full of life, very outgoing, the master tr- storyteller of all time in NASCAR. And he once told me, he said, you know something, son, if I go before you, which is very likely, <laughs> he, said, <laughs> yeah. he said, don't sit around, mope, slump, and cry over me. Because if you do that, I'm going to come out of my grave, grab you, and take you back with me. So I always remember that we laughed about that. 
And so I remember that, and I try not to let it get the best of me, and it hasn't. Steve, you wrote a very poignant column this week for popularspeed.com about how you met Mm -hmm. Tom Higgins. Share a little bit about that, if you would. Well, it was back at the Southern 500 in Darlington in 1976. Now, down there at that time, one of the major stories in NASCAR's history broke. This is a a time when the independent, low-finance drivers are getting tired of losing money. They weren't making any money in racing. They banded together and announced they were going to have a revolution. Boy, they were gonna, if things didn't change, they were going to leave. Well, that story was all over the place. At Darling, there was one problem. Tom Higgins wasn't there. He was tending to a family matter in Charlotte. So in the media center, right in front of me, I saw a group of his newspaper rifles corner a Charlotte Speedway uh, official and say to him that, if he gave any information about what was going on to Tom Higgins, they were going to have his job. Now, this was right in front of me. I'd never seen anything like it. I guess I was pretty much ignored because I was just, you know, all, almost a rookie. <laughs> I'd been on <laughs> yeah. very long. But I was a, basically a, a kid, and I don't think they really had any impression of me whatsoever. But unbeknownst to them, I had the story outright cold, and I got it. Well, I was pretty lucky. One of my friends in racing was James Hilton. And as we all know by now, James Hilton was the ringleader of that entire operation. He told me everything. So by golly, the Royal paper had the full story, courtesy of James. But the next day when Tom came down, uh, of course, he didn't have a big part of that story. Now, he was an excellent reporter, and he found out enough to get the Observer something but didn't have a lot of meat to it. I saw him come into the media center, and I had never spoken to him. Now, I knew who he was, of course, but I had never spoken to him. So I came up, I introduced myself, and I gave him my story, and I gave him my notes and everything else and said, this will help you catch up to what everybody is doing. That was that. Tom thanked me, and I didn't have a chance to speak to him the rest of the day, but that night I was uh, in my motel room, cheap motel room, I might add, and it came a knock at the door, and I opened the door, and there stood Tom Higgins. How he found me, I don't know, but he stood there, he looked at me, he pointed at me, and he said, you are riding with me, and we rode together for the next 25 years. Steve, journalists just don't do what you did, share your notes and share your story. Certainly, they don't share their scoops with other people. Right. What was it about Tom that made you want to do that? Uh, I thought he was treated unfairly. I knew that he didn't get the story largely because the information to him was cut off by, I think, very, uh, well, despicable means. There's a group of guys that get together and threaten a guy with his job if he gives any information whatsoever to Tom. What is that? I think there's competition, there's battling for scoops, there's everything you want to do as a newspaper man. That is underhanded. And that's what I thought. And I said, well, to myself, I'll help that guy catch up. And so that's the reason I did that. Besides, I'd already printed a story, and Tom had only been able to print a snippet of it. He could follow up with a major story that had a lot of the information the other writers simply did not have. 
So I thought that was only the fair thing to do. If you're going to be treated rotten by a group of them, why not be treated well by one? That's my thinking. Steve, I'm going to use a Mike Helton phrase here. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But at the end of the day, how would you like for Tom to be remembered? The way I'd like for him to be remembered is the way he's going to be remembered. Remembered as um, an excellent newspaper man. Uh, a great storyteller, and just a great individual altogether. Uh, and that's what Tom was. Uh, came to the newspapers, he got the scoops, he got the stories. Uh, it came to entertainment. He taught me one thing about working in racing. Uh, and I thought it was a pretty good lesson. If you are out there reporting, the facts of the news is one thing, Okay. People want to know about the people in racing. Every one of these people in the garage area, a crewman, a a, a crew chief, a driver, uh, they all have their own story. And so let's go find out what they got to say and tell their stories. And that's one thing that Tom and I worked together on and one thing that I've learned from him that I spent my whole career trying to do. So if if you put all that together... I think you pretty much have the consummate reporter and the consummate storyteller. That is great, Steve, and I appreciate you sharing that. Now, for a couple of weeks now, I've been looking forward to getting your reaction about somebody else that you knew very well, Junior Johnson. And, Steve, I'm going to go ahead and play the interview, and then we will talk about what you heard. Of all the drivers you had, and you had some definite Hall of Famers, if you had to win one race and you could have put any of those drivers in your race car, which driver would you have picked? Well, you know, I used to drive for myself, so I'd have got it. <laughs> okay, let's take, let's take Junior out of the equation. Other than Junior Johnson. Bobby Allison. I had him when he was prime. I had Daryl, Kale. Different ones like that, I had them in their prime. And when you got a driver in his prime, he is the best driver out there. And I never, ever threatened Darrell or Kale or somebody like that to get in their car and drive it. If I had to choose one driver, it'd been Leroy Robert. Leroy had no fear. And everybody said he didn't have no sense because he didn't have no fear. <laughs> and Kale and Darrell, they was fearless, but not as fearless as he was. I think he would have went deeper and went after it more so than them or Bobby or any driver that I had. Now, you were also a kingmaker in the sport. You brought R.J. Reynolds to the table, to NASCAR, as a sponsor. How did that work out? Well, Winston just came off from TV because the government had disallowed their advertisement. I knew that R.J. Reynolds had a lot of money where they'd been feeding the TV people, and that's the first place I went to, you know, to start to get the money because... Uh, I knew they had it, and I knew they was in advertisements so big 
that there was a great possibility I'd come out of there with a sponsorship. And when I told them how much money I needed, they just laughed at me. They said, Lord have mercy, we got $570 million <laughs> in our budget, and you need $800,000. So well, we need something a lot bigger than this. It hit me right away that if I got them in with NASCAR, I would get my sponsor easier that way than I would anyway. And I said, well, you just want to, you need to sponsor the whole sport. They said, well, how we go about doing that? I said, if you give me your contact person, I'll get Bill France to call him, and Youngs can work it out from that point on, and that's exactly what happened. Was there ever anybody who came back to you and said, Junior, we appreciate that. That was that was big. And they, and they said more than that. They said they couldn't sponsor me because it's a conflict of interest. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I was a little bit PO'd about that deal. <laughs> I got NASCAR in it and lost it myself. You helped broker the deal to put Dale Earnhardt and Richard Childress together when Dale lost his ride. I've always wondered, Dale had a sponsor in Wrangler, and was there ever any talk that he'd drive for you? Yeah, he wanted to race for me, and that's that's how the guy that had the sponsorship at Wrangler would not do nowhere because, you know, I was a contact person there first. And he was a friend of mine, and... He relied on me to do what I need to do to help them get where they need to be. And talking in terms of when he didn't have somebody to go to for me to get the person in the place and the atmosphere that they needed to do the best job for their company. When Earnhardt, uh, they announced that... Uh, that his owner was leaving, he come straight to me and wanted me to hire him and bring Wrangler and come on over there. I talked to him down there at Talladega for about a half a day trying to help him do what I thought he ought to do because I wanted to help her and Artie didn't. You know, he'd won that championship and he had a great opportunity to capitalize on it and he didn't have nobody to go to or nothing to do it. And... He'd just about do anything I told. And I asked him, I said, well, what about going with Bud Moore? Bud Moore had lost his sponsor. And let me see if I could get a break in my operation to where I can hire you, and uh, I will. Well, he went down there for two years. I know I couldn't do nothing for two years because my contract was that long. And about halfway through the year of the second year, him and Bud got uh, an argument over Earnhardt was running the cars too hard and he's blowing the motors up and all that. They almost split up beforehand, but I talked to Ben staying together at the end of the year. Well, at the end of the year, Richard Chillis was running Ricky Rudd, and Earnhardt couldn't go back over and uh, I sold out to Warner Hodge and half of the team. Well, I had two teams in. Well, I need two sponsors. Well, 
I went and put Wrangler in Darrell's team. And I knew the Coors people out in the West. I knew them pretty good because yeah. I talked to them a lot, you know, when I'd go to Riverside and stuff. I called them up, and they wanted to sponsor Neil Bond. So I had my sponsors. Well, Budweiser calls me up, says, I'll give you twice as much money as you got now to sponsor both cars. And I said, well, Lord, have mercy, i got to take care. So I went to Richard Childress, and I said, if you go back and get Earnhardt and you all make up, I got a signed contractor you can have. You don't have to go no further. You got a driver and a contract, money to race with. And they went back and did that, and I had Richard the contract because the, the Wrangler guy didn't like Daryl. He wanted Earnhardt, and I knew they'd fit because that tickled them to death. Well, it did tickle them to death. Well, I called the guy that worked for Bill Elliott. He's hunting for a sponsor, and I told him what, what went on with Coors. And I hadn't, did not have the contract signed with them, or we verbally cut a deal. And I called them and told them I couldn't take the deal and told them about Bill Elliott. That's how that Bill Elliott got there. Now, I was under the impression that you had put Dale with Richard Childress right after he lost the ride in 81. I put him to him twice. He went with Richard. Then they had, you know, some kind of fallout. out. And I put him with Bud. Well, okay. Richard went and got Ricky Rudd. Well, him and Ricky Rudd didn't have the money to race on for, for coming up here. So I went to Richard, told him and Earnhardt to get back together and get their stuff worked out, and I had him a contract. Earnhardt raced for Bud Moore in 83 and 84. Four. And you were prepared to replace Daryl Waltrip. With Dale Earnhardt. That's right. How the course of NASCAR history would have been changed if that had been worked out? Well, you know, the Darrell did me a great job, and I ain't seeing it. Earnhardt would have done a better job. I, you know, because Darrell, I, I couldn't ask for a better job than Darrell did for me. He, you know, he just did it absolutely, uh, you know, about a perfect driver for what we wanted and the atmosphere and the publicity we needed and stuff uh, through the years with Mountain Dew and so on and so forth with Budweiser and stuff he, he was absolute perfect for our, what, what we had Earnhardt would have uh, been a more explosive type thing and everybody says you'd want a whole lot more races with with Earnhardt, you would Darrell, but you got to figure in that Earnhardt was harder on a car. You know, he'd go to front if he, you know, if he had to to tire the car up, he'd still go to front. But uh, Darrell took care of the car. He went when he had to, and he could get the job done. I don't know. Uh, I wouldn't say he could outdrive Earnhardt, but I guarantee he could hang with him. Now, he was when he went after it, he'd go get it. 
You and Kale won three straight championships together. Yes. And, of course, Jimmy Johnson has won three straight, and he's about to win a fourth straight. How do those two streaks compare to you? Well, a three in a row with Kale is not a big deal to me because I won three in a row with Kale and two with Darrell in a row. So on my side of the thing, you're looking at a different story than what you are on the driver's side. And Jimmy's going to win. I, I think he'll win his uh, fourth championship. I don't think there's no question about it. Does it matter to you that his championships have been won with the chase format? No. Does it not? Racing's, you know, it's a sport that uh, people dominate. And as long as they stay together, they're going to dominate but they're already talking about now the mechanic retiring and, you know, that kind of stuff. That hurts the race team, and it don't recover. You might think that it does, but there's people there that thinks a lot of Jimmy and a lot of people thinks more of on the mechanic side, uh, the mechanic. So it'll hurt them. Just the conversation will hurt them. Junior, what do you think of the car tomorrow? I like the safety part of it because it ain't no way that you can't say that thing's safety because them wrecks that you're seeing at, at Talladega is unbelievable that somebody could walk out on them thing. And they did a great job there. They just relaxed on the drivability of that car when they build it somewhere along the way they've not got the chassis to the degree of drivability that it needs to be and they should fix that now you always were a master under the hood and with the car tomorrow it seems like there's a finite number of things that you can do under the hood would you have enjoyed working on a car tomorrow I don't think I would because a little bit's too much for them with me. You know, if I did a little bit of something that was out of line, it'd be a lot. (laughs) And uh, it'd wind up, you know, hurting a team and stuff like that. But uh, I really interested in working on a car anymore. I've did uh, things that I, you know, was interesting. I created a lot of things that, you know, the motors and stuff and did a lot of stuff that people still running today. And that side of the innovation side of things is uh, not any interest to me anymore. It's, you know, I'm certainly supportive of the sport. Looking back on your career, how do you want to be remembered by race fans? Gave it all I could. I didn't leave nothing laying on the table. Took it all with me to the racetrack. Steve, in that interview with Junior Johnson, 
he talked about two very important events that took place in NASCAR history. One that certainly changed the course of NASCAR history when he was the guy, key instrumental in bringing Winston into the sport. And on the other hand, he also talked about something that could have had a major impact on the course of NASCAR history when he talked about the very real possibility of firing DW, who had already won championships for right, him, right. and hiring Del Earnhardt. Right. What is your perspective on those two events? Well, the perspective on the first one, as you, th- as you know, is the, the inclusion of the R.J. Reynolds Tobacco Company in racing. And not by the way Junior intended. You know, he wanted Winston Cigarettes or R.J. Reynolds to be a sponsor for his team because he wasn't racing full-time at that, at that particular time, and he was not going to spend his own money doing it. So when he negotiated up there with R.J. Reynolds in the meeting, they said, you don't understand, Junior. We have, we have all this TV money we can't use anymore. <laughs> yeah. We wanted something bigger than that, and that's when – Junior said, well, I'll put you in touch with Bill France then. Now, think about this. Think about this. If Junior had not seen the light about what R.J. Reynolds could do for NASCAR, he would have never mentioned go talk to Bill France Jr. He could have been selfish and say, oh, well, I just want this much money or that much money. And forget about it, as long as he got his but he did more than that. He went on to help NASCAR. And as a result of what he did, you know, all of a sudden, there was point money. There was, there was a championship that meant something. It lasted for 33 years and grew. Every time Reynolds came back into the sport the next year, they, where do I go? The Winston Million, the, the, the Winston itself, uh, moving the banquet to New York. Every year the points fund goes up, so guys have made a lot of money who did well in racing. All of that, all of that stems from that single meeting that Junior had with R.J. Reynolds. And had he had a different attitude and not been able to see the entire picture, I don't know what racing would be today. I don't. Steve, is there any way to put into perspective exactly what kind of impact R.J. Reynolds, Winston, had on the sport because I don't know of a way to put it that would fully encapsulate it. Well, let's put it this way. I think that if if, if R.J. Reynolds' tobacco had not come in to sport in 1971, NASCAR would never, in my opinion, advance more than a regional sport. They didn't have the means to advance themselves to the national consciousness it would still be a regional sport attended by people mostly in the southeast at speedways that did very little to improve themselves because they were trying to make a buck too. And I don't think we would see NASCAR ever approach the scale that it eventually became without the Reynolds' input. And I want you to understand, it was beyond giving them money. I mean, R.J. Reynolds gave tracks money to, to improve their facilities as long as you're playing it red and white. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was yeah, free. Yeah. But that's smart marketing. Right. That's very smart. They sponsored races. Later, they sponsored a team. The, all of that goes beyond just handing over money and say, here, do what you want with it, or we want a point system or something like that. So they were fully integrated into the sport and helped it rise into the national consciousness. They weren't the only ones that did it for NASCAR. The 1979 Daytona 500, 
flag the flag on CBS. We all know what happened there. The oncoming of cable TV, which eventually led to a network. All of that helped. And, uh, but it, I don't think it would even get to that point if R.J. Reynolds had not come in in 71. Let's talk about DW mm-hmm. and the Earnhardt scenario. Junior Johnson does not blow smoke. No. And so this was the real deal. This was a situation that was actually on the table. It was on the verge of happening. How do you think things would have played out if it had, in fact, taken place? Oh, I think we would have seen uh, great things. Don't misunderstand me. Uh, Dale did great things with Richard Childers, okay? He would have done, I think, equally as well or perhaps even better with Junior if there was one critical factor that he could establish with Junior, being friends with him. Because we all know Childress was not just Earnhardt's boss. He was his friend. And they, they went hunting together. They spent time together. They were friends. Well, if Junior and Dale had reached that same level of friendship, I'm pretty sure the sky would have been the limit. Well, I think you're exactly right because that was the point that I was going to make. I think it could have went one of two ways. Number one, if they had been able to build that kind of relationship that you mentioned, I think certainly awesome things could have happened. However, you consider Dale Earnhardt's personality and you consider Junior Johnson's personality. And from what I understand about both – it was either their way or the highway. Yeah. And if they had had some kind of clash, it could have blew up in a second's time. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, I think it remains to be seen how that would have played out. Yeah. You know, you can speculate all you want. Now, one thing about Junior was if you produced for him, be you a crew chief, engine builder, or his driver, then his attitude towards you very, very positive. So, obviously, Dale was capable of producing. And I think on that scale, uh, Junior probably would have been totally acceptant of uh, Dale and the situation would have been good. But you're right. You're right. Sometimes people are at loggerheads just because of personalities alone, and that doesn't help anything. Steve, I think that's one of the fun things about this podcast is that we can sit around and talk about what might have been and some of the possibilities. And and the cool thing is, neither one of us are wrong because the fact is, we do not know. (laughs) That's right. It's kind of like arguing over who is the greatest driver of all time because you cannot quantify that. It's one of the many things we don't know. Absolutely. (laughs) And we'll never be able to prove it. Steve, next week's episode, I'm kind of stepping up my game, I think, uh, because we've had David Pearson, we've had Junior Johnson, and next week I'm going to play the first of a three-part interview that I did with Bud Moore. Oh. And next week, mm-hmm. the entire episode, the entire interview is going to be devoted to his service in World War II. Oh, man, that's a terrific story. I mean, it, it, it's, it's hard to fathom uh, a young man uh, in war uh, going through what Bud did and then making those significant accomplishments. Uh, it really is Hollywood would love this. <laughs> no kidding. Steve, let me go ahead and play you this clip from Bud, and I want to see what you think of it. You know, war is war and war is hell. I'll put it that way, and a lot of people don't realize it and just how bad it can be. And uh, I know it's like the guys over right now fighting in Iraq and Afghanistan. It's pretty bad when... Uh, 
they don't really know who they're fighting and all this stuff. But in World War II, we we killed everything that moved. If it was a dog or a bird or or a person or who, it didn't make any difference. And uh, that's the same way the Germans were. They do the same thing, and uh, it just it's just a whole different situation. Steve, I can't even put into words how powerful a moment that was to be sitting across the table from Bud when he was talking about that particular part of his service. War is hell. Oh, yeah, absolutely. There's no question about it. And uh, Bud lived it, lived it to the the limit in the situation he was in. Uh, I think that when he came out and came back home, I'm pretty sure Bud would tell the stories he experienced in Europe, but I always noticed, and I heard him more than once, but I always heard him tell those stories, and I noticed one thing. He never said the word I. I did this, and I did that. No, I never heard it. I mean, I know he can. he's done it, but what, it was more or less of we. We had to do this, and we had to do that. So uh, that, to me, is pretty significant for a man who accomplished so much and could rightly, let's say, brag about it. But that's nothing to brag about as far as he's concerned. Well, Rick, I happen to notice that uh, in this massive scene archive you have, uh, you come up with the idea of talking about an issue of the week. Now, I think that is excellent. And I've got one issue right here from October the 8th, 1992. Lord have mercy, it's a long time ago. <laughs> it's only 26 years. It's only a quarter of a century. Oh, my God. <laughs> but what it's about, the issue is about North Wilkesboro. And uh, I'm like several other fans I loved going to North Wilkesboro and covering races there because that was the way it used to be in NASCAR. And North Wilkesboro was the track that stayed the way NASCAR used to be the longest. But I also noticed in here this uh, interesting feature story. And there's a byline by a guy named Rick Houston. How, how about that? Yeah, special correspondent. Why don't you tell us about this particular piece? <laughs> well, as you noticed, I've kind of curled up into the fetal position here on the floor. <laughs> because I tell you, that weekend and the weekend before at Martinsville, that was pretty much rock bottom for old Rick Houston. I had moved from Nashville, my home in Nashville, Tennessee, and I was going to make it in the great and wonderful world of NASCAR as a reporter. The week before at Martinsville, I had slept in my car. A 1976 Good. Chrysler Cordoba. Oh, it's well, not, you had room. It's not green and rust. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing on it worked. Had no hubcaps. It was a hoopty. Oh, my God. It was a hoopty. So I slept in my car and snuck food out of the press box. So that was my plan at North Wilkesboro. And I got to the racetrack on Friday morning and found out that they didn't serve food until Sunday. Sunday, yeah. And Steve, I sit here and I tell that story and I get chills because that really was the end of my rope. Uh, I can just imagine. Yeah. Mm. So to this day, 
I can remember the smell of the personal pan pizzas that other reporters were able to buy and bring up to the press box. So that <laughs> that was tough. And and you know how much I like to eat. <laughs> <laughs> you weren't the only one, I can tell you that. I can tell you, if I never committed assault and battery and beat somebody up for their pizza, that, <laughs> that would have been tough. Might, might have ended my career right then and there. Well, tell us about this story you wrote for us. Well, that night... I went to my car, and that was probably the longest night of my life because that really and truly was. I can't even begin to tell you how scared I was and how mm-hmm. alone I felt. And that was honestly the most sincere prayer I ever prayed because what else could I say? You know, I, I did not know where to turn. So the next morning, I got up and uh, kind of washed off as best I could, went to the Enfield Media Center. And who did I find there but Deb Williams? Uh-huh. And she told me that this story on Robert Calicut, the gas man for Richard yeah. Petty, yeah. who had been hurt very critically in a pit fire in Atlanta a couple of years before. And she told me that that story was going to run the next week. Oh, all right. And I'm telling you, it wasn't a full-time job, obviously. Uh, I had begged and pleaded and basically chained myself to the the, the, <laughs> the, the Griggs Publishing offices, but it had not happened yet. Yeah. But if a story of mine was going to appear in Winston Cup scene, it meant maybe, possibly, that I belonged in the sport. And I cannot tell you what that meant. And then, you know, I kind of smiled and, and went up to the press box, and a guy that I had met in the press box at Bristol just a few weeks before, he said, Rick, the paper that I work for owns a little weekly newspaper near here, and they're looking for a sports editor. Would you be interested? Yes! <laughs> <laughs> yes. Oh, yeah. Are yeah. you kidding? Uh, you know, I did not ask where it was. I did not ask how much it paid. But long story short, I went the next Tuesday because the race was rained out, and I you know, had to stay until Monday at the racetrack. But the next Tuesday, I went up to the newspaper offices in Sparta, North Carolina, the luxurious offices of the Allegheny News, uh-huh. and I got the gig. Good. And I spent two years there, uh, basically got on my feet. I learned what journalism meant. I learned the job. And at the end of those two years, you and Deb got the big idea to hire me. <laughs> Where did we come up with that? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll tell you, Rick, uh, be honest with you, I had, I had seen you at the tracks, and I noticed if one thing else, you were, you were very diligent. Now I know why. I mean, <laughs> you know, but uh, the simple fact of the matter is that you had no qualms about working. You had no qualms about doing your best, even though you didn't know where it would lead in the future. Now, there's one thing that you you always admire in a journalist, and that's a man or a woman who would do the job and not worry about the consequences uh, or not worry about significant rewards it might bring. Hard work pays off, Rick, and it did for you. Steve, thank you so much for that compliment, and it means a lot coming from you. Now, in this issue, mm-hmm. the coverage was from North Wilkesboro, and that race was won by Jeff Bodine. Right. I believe, if I'm not mistaken, it went caution-free. So it how, may have. How may about have. that? I'm telling you, there's nothing would surprise me. I believe at the time, 
Well, he was driving for 92. He was driving for... Bud Moore. Yeah. That's right. Bud Well, how about that? Bud Moore. I think we need to read this issue a little bit closer if we can, if we're having trouble going back in our memory banks. Well, I tell you, you talk about memory. I've been looking through this issue, and there's this big story about New Hampshire getting ready to join this circuit. It's a page-long story, and it's written by me, and I don't remember a thing about it. So <laughs> you got to give me a break here. Yeah, well, I think next week I'll go ahead and email you a scan of the file so maybe you can do a little homework. There we go. Steve, is there anything else that you would like to mention about that issue or anything else going on at that time that you can remember? Ah, yes, 1992, the year of Alan Kowicki. And uh, he was having a very, very good season that year, Uh, obviously in the fight for the championship and uh, it turned out to be, of course, his year as a champion. And the final race of the season at Atlanta Motor Speedway has been considered uh, with its drama. We know all about its drama, or especially you do, about its drama and uh, the type of conclusion, conclusion it brought to the season. 1992 was a very special year, and that race at Atlanta was a very special race, as you well know and have chronicled for us very well. You know, somebody should write a book about that race. I think they should. <laughs> You know anybody? (laughs) We might have to give that a shot somewhere down the road. Well, Rick, there's one thing I would like to uh, say here on the podcast is that I want to thank all the fans and friends out there who've expressed their concern for me after Tom's passing. I'll let you all know right now, I'm doing just fine. I'm getting along very well. I don't have any real problems. I sure miss my best friend, and I always will. But uh, I'm fine, and I want to thank all of you for your uh, emails, your messages, your uh, your, um, direct messages. Every means possible, I've received uh, messages of condolence and support. And uh, I certainly don't want anybody to think it's not appreciated because it is very much so. And again, I thank all of you. Well, Steve, I don't exactly know how to follow that up because I know that that comes from a, a very real place and a very deep place within you because, you know, I knew Tom, but I certainly did not know Tom as well as you do. So again, I want to express my condolences to you and if you need anything i'm just a phone call or text away well thank I, you, I really thank do you mean much. that folks you can support the production of this podcast on patreon.com slash the scene vault if you can do five dollars a month you'll get one of the two most recent books about nascar that i've written either nascar's greatest race or dell versus daytona for 10 bucks a month you'll get both now something new that i haven't mentioned before Once we get to 10 patrons combined, either $5 or $10, doesn't matter if there's five and five or nine and one or six and four or whatever. Once we get to 10 patrons, I'll give away a copy of the July 12th, 1984 edition of Grand National Scene. Now, Steve, do you know what was covered in that edition? Uh, Once again, Rick, old age has caught up with me. (laughs) How did you tell us? Okay. I'll give you a hint. July of 1984. Oh, yes. (laughs) I remember that now. Richard Petty and Daytona, absolutely in front of President Ronald Reagan. Yes. You will get a very nice copy 
of that edition. Very, very historic race and great coverage. And there's a story in there that if I hadn't read that story, I would have never known because we all know about President Reagan and 200th win and all that. But one of the sidebars that you wrote was about David Pearson and Tim Richmond getting into a fight after that race. Uh, How about that, Jack? <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know if he called it a fight. I went to David Pearson later and said, what happened? And he told about a confrontation with uh, Tim Richmond, and he said, so I just bopped him one. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what? I believe my money would be on David Pearson anyway. I think mine would too. <laughs> so, 10 patrons, and we're only a two, three, four away from that right now. So, one of those will receive this issue. And that is a fine issue to own. A lot of history in one issue of seen. Or if you would prefer to help out with a single contribution rather than on a monthly basis, you can do so at paypal.me slash the scene vault podcast. And again, on iTunes, go over and leave us a five-star review and leave a written review. Once we get to 50 reviews, I'll pick the names out of a hat and that person will receive copies of every single NASCAR book that I've ever written. And Steve, we're actually getting some love on iTunes. Well, how about that? I think that's just great. You're doing a terrific job, Rick. Steve, you got to hear this. From Dodge by Petty. Uh -huh. Now, do you have any idea who their favorite driver might be? Oh, um, uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is what this review says on iTunes. Each week in the 1980s, I waited to get my copy of the Grand National scene and later Winston Cup scene. My mailman always read my copy at his lunch break before delivering it to me. That was the only way to get racing news. These podcasts have helped relive those fond memories. Now, Steve, since I've been doing the scene vault and we've been doing this podcast, sure. those stories... I mean, I can't tell you how many people have said Thursdays was a big day when they got their copy. I mean, I've had people say that they literally waited by the mailbox huh. to, to get their copies of Winston Cup Well, scene. you know, I've heard stories like that over the years, and it just proves uh, a couple of things. Number one, uh, NASCAR was indeed a very popular sport for a lot of people. Number two, the coverage it received on a national basis was not very good. Number three, this is where scene came in. We decided that covering NASCAR and NASCAR only would be a good way to go. And so that's what we started doing when the paper started up. And that turned out to be just the kind of thing that people were looking for. And number four, and I cannot stress this enough, we did it professionally. Every single person on our staff was a trained photographer or a trained journalist with no no uh, part-timers or anything of that nature. And nothing wrong with them, but I'm just simply saying that they were all trained uh, journalists, and that helped the quality of the newspaper. So all those things combined, I can understand why, why people were looking forward to each issue. I also wanted to share this one from RER356 on iTunes. They said, I subscribed to this paper for years. Now to get the behind-the-scenes stories just makes this one of my favorite racing podcasts. And it's just getting started. You may not be able to go home again, but you sure can relive great moments and maybe not-so-great moments in NASCAR history. You may not be able to go home again. But, Steve, we're trying our best to take you there. Absolutely. And, uh, uh, you know, great moments from the past 
and tall tales from the past is what this is all about. Now, finally, I would like to thank Peter Salino and the team at Centaur Media for their belief in this podcast. I would like to thank Joe Step and his band Frantic Radio Beings for the theme music. So we'll talk to you next week.